I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 167. I don't know why my head went, just my head, not my brain, my head. Okay. Okay. It went straight to seven minutes in heaven. Did you ever do that? Because I said episode 167. Uh, no. (laughs) Never. Okay. Bye. Who did you do it with? Nobody. Oh. (laughs) God, we're lame. Loser over here. (laughs) No one. I dreamed. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, no, never. Never. (laughs) Plus, I mean, that's tight quarters, and I'm a big girl, and I have always been a big girl. Like, no, ma'am, what you want me to do up in there? I mean, I guess you're supposed to be close, but no. But you know who's not a loser, even if they did or didn't do Seven Minutes in Heaven? Okay, I I was going to see what your segue was, because if you said, you know who I do want to do Seven Minutes in Heaven with, I was going to be like, okay, one, that's my line, but no. Okay. Patreoners! <laughs> I scared the shit out of you. <laughs> my head shook back. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Coming in hot. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lindsay D. from Alabama. Shayna L. from California. And she is a co-host of a podcast called Wine, Spirits, and Witches. So check them out. Gabriella G. from Oklahoma. Mia B. from California. Natalie H. from Arizona. Kristen W. from Texas. Katie M. from Georgia. Audrey H. from Texas. <laughs> it's really hard to do that back to back. And also, I felt like I had hot breath on the first one. <laughs> I know. I felt it over here. <laughs> Whatever. Sarah A. from New York. Just New York. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Mandy I. from Wisconsin. Thank you all so much for all of your support, for putting up with even more of our shenanigans over at Patreon. So if you want to be cool like them, question mark, what did you say before? Not losers, so cool. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Opposite of not losers, cool. If you want to be cool with the K-E-W-L. Oh, okay. Not even the K-O-O-L. We're going no. K-E-W-L. Okay. Cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, that. <laughs> We're totally cool. And this is why we didn't do it. Yeah, this is why we had zero minutes in heaven. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so if you want to do something, head yeah. on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Yes. Also, we're recording this on the 6th. Why can't I, why can't I talk? Have a podcast, they said. It'd be easy. Nobody said. Yeah. Well, it's been six years since my mom died. Here, I can say that. I just want to thank y'all because I really didn't have a hard time this year, and I think it's because... She's still alive to me, and through this podcast, I get to talk about her, and y'all talk about her and keep her memory alive, and now with new listeners, and they're going back, you know, starting at the older episodes where, like, I talk more about losing her and stuff like that, and so they've reached out, and I don't know. It's just been way easier this year. Like, I only had, like, one moment that I was just like, oh, but then... Come here and we're like laughing like hyenas. So thank y'all and thank you, Carrie and Tiffany. Okay, the story this week doesn't have a ton to do with the actual 
murder itself. It has more to do with the background things, like the upbringing and the legal system failures and that kind of thing. So this week's story has a lot of discussion, a lot of appeals and that kind of thing, and not a ton on the actual murder. Snooze fest. I think you're going to like it though. No, I'm, I like honest TBH when you said what you were saying, like doesn't have a lot to do with the murder. I was like, please just don't say like the court system, like the court, Hearing wise, yeah, you know, and then you said Bexar. I was like, oh, love that, love that shit, yeah. And then you said some, but I do like. I mean, I hate when they fail people, but this brings on a lot of conversation, yeah. So this could be a four-hour episode. It could be like a thirty-minute one. I have no idea where oh, this story is going to take us. So sit back, and who knows what may happen. Let me just say that Carrie and Will can attest to this. She will always say. This might be really short. Two hours later, she's still on her fucking story. <laughs> yeah, we record for a long time, guys. Before I start this story, though, I do want to say that this is a very heavy story. So just a warning that there will be a lot of talk of substance abuse, sexual assault, and suicide throughout this story. So please skip forward if any of that is triggering to you. Okay. Many of you may have heard this story because not too, too long ago, it made headlines. We're talking about the story of Centoya Brown. I almost watched a documentary about this. I am so fucking glad you did not because, yes, there is a new documentary on Netflix about Centoya Brown, but we'll get into it. Not talking about the name of it. Don't talk about it. Centoya was born January 29, 1988. She was born to her biological mother, Georgina, and we don't know really anything about her biological father. We know that Georgina, her biological mother, is white, and her biological father was black, so Centoya is mixed. But that's really all we know about the biological father. That seems like a random detail, but it will come up later. Georgina was just 16 when she got pregnant with Centoya. She got pregnant on her 16th birthday. Georgina had a very, very rough relationship with her mother. There's a lot of mental illness in Georgina's background as well as her mother's background. And really on down the line, her mother's mother's background when Georgina was younger, she saw her mother shoot herself in the head in an attempted suicide, but she survived. Georgina's grandmother died by suicide, and one of Georgina's aunts died by suicide. Oh, gosh. So there was a lot of mental illness in the family and a lot of substance abuse to cope with the mental illness. The grandmother was raped, and that resulted in a pregnancy. And that was one of many times that she had been raped throughout her life. And then Georgina, which is Centoya's mother, she started being raped by a neighbor's relative when she was six or seven years old. And that lasted three or four years up until she was about 10. So again, depending if it started when she was six or seven, 
the amount of years. Georgina's mom would make her go over to that house where she would then have to leave with that man. He would assault her and then give her $20 and then take her back home. So her mom basically trafficked her. Wow. And I'm not a hundred percent. Now this is, this is coming from Georgina. I don't know for sure if her mother knew that she was being assaulted and that that's where she was getting the money. I don't, but I mean, kind of a, a six-year-old kid com- getting $20. Right. At that time. Right. I mean, in the early 70s. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And you know that the mom would at some point see her leaving with that man. Right. And Georgina even said, like, talking about her mom because they just have such a terrible relationship where they, they still talk and they still see each other. But, you know, she even said, like, we can't be around each other very long before we fight because, again, there's so much history and trauma and mental illness and all of the things. And so when they get together, it's like two bulls, you know, but she even said like talking about her mom, like, do you hate me that much that you would do? I mean, do you hate me that much that you would send me out knowing, you know, and that kind of made me wonder, did her mom get pregnant with her when she was raped by that man? And so that's where the hatred of Georgina comes from. If she, you know, if she truly does yeah. hate Georgina the way Georgina feels like she does. Yeah. I wonder if maybe Georgina was the product of that rape. That's just pure conjecture. I have literally nothing to base that on. That is pure conjecture. But I, yeah. I mean, just how it was presented in that Netflix documentary, it made me go, huh. I wonder if the grandma got pregnant with Georgina and, you know, and that's why, huh. You know, it just made me kind of think. So by the time Georgina was 16 and she got pregnant with Centoya, she had a lot of trauma and a lot of baggage that she was dealing with. And now she's 16 and she's pregnant. So she drank and she drank every single day. While she was pregnant? While she was pregnant. And then after Centoya was born, she continued to drink. Then when Centoya was, I think, about seven months old, Georgina was introduced to crack cocaine and she started using crack and alcohol. And that, of course, came with an onslaught of more issues and the financial responsibility of trying to get more crack. And so Georgina began working as a sex worker to get money for the crack. Which she learned at a young age via her mom and the neighbor. Allegedly, but yes. Allegedly. Yeah. Georgina ended up putting Centoya up for adoption because, again, Georgina just couldn't do it. With her own addictions to crack and the drinking, she just she just couldn't keep up. And so she ended up putting Centoya up for adoption. So since Georgina drank every day when she was pregnant, stuff, do babies, are they born with, like, an addiction to alcohol, like they could be to like drugs and stuff? They're not. I mean, I guess they technically could go through alcohol withdrawals, but more so they are born with what's called fetal alcohol syndrome. Okay, I do know that. And so when you're in the womb, alcohol attacks the brain the most. So it's not like 
okay, hey, like it's attacking the baby's liver like it does an adult or, yeah. uh, you know, it's the developing brain, which is why we have a legal drinking age because of how alcohol impacts the development on a developing brain. And so a baby in the womb, it impacts how the brain develops and can lead to a whole host of issues down the road as far as developmental delays with cognition, behavioral problems. Um, Babies with fetal alcohol syndrome have usually have classic physical attributes. Mm. But again, there's usually cognitive delays, sometimes some motor delays, and then impulsive behaviors, that kind of thing. Okay. After Centoya was put up for adoption, she bounced around, I think it was like seven different homes before she was eventually adopted by the Brown family. So think about this kid who is adopted. I think she was two when she was adopted. So those formative years, when you look at, think like back to like Psych 101, and you look at the Erickson developmental stages, the first stage is attachment versus unattachment. And so... If a kid does not feel safe and secure, they don't develop appropriate attachments. Ergo, will have attachment disorders where they have difficulty with trust and they never feel secure and yada, 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 right? And then you compound that with, so her inability to develop that attachment to her mother who's has substance abuse issues, who's gone a lot, they're like living on the streets, no security, and then you have her bouncing around in the foster system until she's two, and then she finally gets adopted. So that does a lot to the developing brain of a toddler. We don't know a lot about the Browns that adopted her. We do know that Elinette is a school teacher. I only found just like one Google thing that said her adopted father's name was Thomas Brown, but I know nothing about him. It said that Centoya at some point said that her adopted father was abusive towards her, but I don't know in what way. One thing I did find said that he hit her. That's the only thing I found, and nothing nothing else I found went into more detail on the abuse that she sustained there. I do know that all of the footage from the Netflix documentary, which is like a decade's worth of footage. Elinette seems to be a supportive mother to her. But again, it's just footage in a, I mean, who knows? But I do know that they had, they had a lot of back and forth, you know, where she, Centoya was that kind of trying teenager. She was, she always was kind of pushing the boundaries, was always kind of getting in trouble. And, and they just had a rocky relationship so although she was adopted and it was a by all intents and purposes a loving home, add a question mark to that because I don't actually know. In her early, early teens, Centoya started having some run-ins with the law. Crimes against a person, crimes against property, like that kind of run-ins with the law. Where she would spend time in the Department of Children's Services, like basically locked up. All in all, she spent two years in those facilities. She would run away, and I think that her adopted mother always tried to have the house to where that was a safe place where she could come back to. But again, 
rocky relationship. And eventually, in 2004, she ran away and was living on the streets in Nashville. And the Browns live in Kentucky. So, not terribly far. Also, I do want to say that, like, as the story goes on, when Centoya opens up about the abuse against her adopted father, Elinette divorces him. So, that's probably why we don't really know anything about him. But I just feel like, with how big this case is, like, why do we not know more about him? But... We don't. Once Centoya got on the streets in Nashville, she met a guy by the name of Garyon McLaughlin. Don't know if I said his name right. I don't give a fuck either because we hate him. He's a gangbanger pimp on the streets who goes by the name of Cutthroat. Yeah. Some people call him Cut for short. So that is who Centoya meets up with, unfortunately. So as any piece of shit does he's 24 she's 16 and he sees this opportunity to take this 16 year old and make some money off of her and be like oh i'll take care of you here come live with me i'll give you food i'll give you a place to stay i'll take care of you yada 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 so she goes and lives with him at the in-town suites sadly a story we know all too well right when they first get together, they, as she said, had fun. They had sex. They did drugs together. It was just kind of like a mutual, fun kind of relationship until it wasn't. He told her, basically, you're lazy. Like, you got to do your part, make money. He forced her out on the streets to work as a sex worker. Here's the thing, too. When they met Cutthroat, was actually wanted in connection with a shooting of this woman named Rachel Browning. And she had been shot in the neck and was paralyzed, like quadriplegic, like neck down paralyzed. So, you know, he told her some of that shit. So she's terrified of him. I mean, he's like literally wanted in connection with shooting this other girl who is paralyzed from the neck down. And he's got guns He's a gangbanger. He's her pimp now. She's going to do everything he fucking says to do. And at this point, he had started beating her and raping her over and over and over again so that he could take control of her in order to have that domination on her to instill that fear so that when she did go out on the street to work as a sex worker, Number one, she would always come back and give him the money because she's terrified of him. And so, again, it's classic human trafficking manipulation of the beatings and the rapings and all of that to keep them, quote unquote, in line. He would also tell her, like, if she didn't go out and work, that he would kill her. He knows where her mom lives. And there was... For sure, this one occasion, while he was beating her, he choked her to the point where she passed out. So, she knows he fucking means business. If he says he's going to kill me, he's going, he will kill me and not think twice about it. So, I better fucking go out. Not to mention the fact she's, oh, by the by, she's 16 years old. So, of course, she's going to do what he says do. So, on August 6th of 2004, Cutthroat tells Santoya, okay, you fucking lazy you need to like literally tells her these words like you're lazy you need to go the fuck out there and make your make some money for us because i'm tired of supporting you 
So Centoya leaves the hotel room. She heads to this east area of Nashville that's known for sex workers to be picked up and to pick up Johns and all the things. She goes to this Sonic drive-in and she waits to be picked up. She's not there long before 43-year-old Johnny Michael Allen pulls in. When he gets there, he asks her if she's hungry and if she's up for any action. And she's like, yes and yes. So they negotiate a price and they agree to have sex for $150. They both order some food at Sonic and he's like, hey, you want to go back to my house with me? And Centoya's new to sex work. She's only been with Cutthroat for like three weeks. That just tells you how quickly the manipulation can take hold, especially on these young victims, boys and girls that are being trafficked, because she's only been with him for like three weeks. So he says, do you want to go to my house? And she's like, "Uh, you know what? Let's actually just go back to like this hotel. And he's like, no, no, no. Like nobody's in my house. We'll be alone. Like it's fine. Like let's go back to my house actually. I prefer it. And she's like, okay. Johnny Allen that picked her up worked as a real estate agent, was a youth pastor and a Sunday school teacher and started a homeless ministry at the local Baptist church. And, you know, in his spare time, picked up underage uh, sex workers. But, you know, great guy. What's so gross is he probably started the homeless ministry for his own picking. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, the youth ministry, because you picked up a 16-year-old sex worker, you Uh, nasty fuck. Dirty bird. I'm not saying anything about the sex workers. I'm saying about him, like... 16. Yes. And I'm talking about sex workers who are there not by choice. I am a firm fucking believer that sex work should be legal Mm -hmm. and that it should be somewhat... It is your right to have sex with whomever you choose to have sex with. And I think that it should be legal. I think that it should be regulated. I think that fucking STI testing all the fucking time. Like, let's get some good fucking tax money off of this. Mm -hmm. Let's make it safe for everyone involved, the women and men who work in the industry and the patrons of the industry. Like, let's make this fucking safe all around. It is fucking doable. Like, so I'm not saying ooh about someone who works as a sex worker. I'm saying Ooh, to him, fucking using someone who is not there by choice and a fucking child. You literally said fucking like at least five or more times. Because I am, this case makes me so mad. It how deserves- do you not say fucking around your dad? Like how? Because those just rolled off your tongue. <laughs> I was like, one, two, three. Well, because you said fucking and some of them, like, oh, fucking tax. And I was like, literally tax for fucking. And then I was like. It made you notice them? Yeah. And then I was like, okay, that's the second time. Third, fourth, fifth. And, you know, I got five fingers. So on one hand. Okay. <laughs> the other one's holding up a I piece wanna, sign. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't want to know what the other one's doing. <laughs> a lot of more set. I mean, I get it, but I didn't want to know what you're doing because I can't see your hands right now. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Moving right along because whatever. When they get back to his house, Johnny starts telling Centoya about how wonderful he is and how important he is and showing her all of his gun collection. Is he a Leo? I mean, he's pretty much, yeah. So showing her all of his gun collection and talking about his military service and 
again, just talking all about how important he is. So this child who has been made to feel small her whole life and insignificant her whole life now has this man who's literally paying. So she feels like he owns her right now. And he's telling her how important he is, showing her his gun collection. I mean, can you imagine? I would be like, first of all, he didn't want to go to the hotel. He wanted me to come back to this house by myself. Now he's showing me his gun collection. And she's just like sitting there eating her Sonic like, okay, right? So she's like, okay, can I take a shower? So she like goes and uses his bathroom, which... Of course she did. She's like, can I get a good shower, please? Because again, she's living on the fucking streets, living out of a hotel. Who knows when, how long they've actually lived in that hotel room. So she's getting food and a hot shower. Who knows when the last time she had those two things are. Then Centoya tells Johnny, hey, can we just go? I'm really tired. Can we just go lay down for a little while? And so she lays down and kind of pretends to be asleep, thinking like maybe he'll just leave her alone. Because again, she's 16 and she's new to this and she doesn't want to have sex with him. She's not comfortable. She doesn't feel safe. And he's laying next to her naked and she trying to kind of tries to pretend to be asleep and he starts feeling up on her and she pushes him away and he grabs her leg like really hard and she kind of pushes him away. And he reaches over to grab something on the side of the bed. And she thinks he's going for a gun. And in her purse, she had a gun that Cutthroat had given her. Because that is what pimps will do. They'll give them one of their guns for protection. So she grabs the gun. And while he's reaching over for what she thinks is a gun, she shoots him in the back of the head. After Centoya shoots Johnny, she takes the money from his wallet, takes two of his guns, and leaves in his truck. Because she can't fucking go back empty-handed to cutthroat. She can't fucking do that. So she ends up leaving Johnny's truck at a Walmart parking lot and then flags somebody else down to take her back to the hotel. Well, it doesn't take police long to figure out who did this. And they arrest Santoya for Johnny Allen's murder. Do you know what kind of news headlines they had on his murder or anything? Oh, it was all calling her a prostitute and like everything was about her being, and I know that's not current language right now, you know, but again, it's, hell, that's probably still the, what would be the headline, but Yeah, it was all saying like that she was a prostitute and that she murdered him. And so she was arrested and charged with homicide, aggravated robbery, handgun possession, and criminal impersonation. So again, she was only 16. And so it was this, initially, it was this big judgment in the court system of whether to try her as a juvenile or an adult. As soon as they arrested her, she never denied that she killed Johnny. She said, yeah, I did it. I did it in self-defense. Like, yeah, I thought he was reaching for a gun. I told him I didn't want it. You know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And I thought he was reaching for a gun. So I shot him. But they're like, you shot him in the back of the head. But if you think about it, he's reaching over. If he turns around, boom, she's gone. Like, 
and he has military experience and all of that, she didn't stand a chance. Right. She's literally in fight or flight. She's doing the best that she knows how to do. Yeah. Well, the police said that there was not a gun next to his bed. And they're like, you never saw a gun. And, you know, there wasn't one next to the bed. And there's no way it could have been self-defense. So they decided to try her as an adult. It went to trial. And they said that because... So if you look at the crime scene pictures, basically how Johnny Allen was laying... Picture that if you were laying on the edge of your bed and you rent, you went to like reach to get something off your nightstand, but then you just like interlaced your fingers instead. That's kind of how his hands were laying. And so they were like, he wasn't reaching for a gun. He was like, just like laying there. And so they're saying it couldn't have been self-defense. So she ended up, I'm sure that's not the only piece of evidence, but she didn't take the stand in her defense. Because her attorneys felt like she was too impulsive. She's a 16-year-old. They didn't know how she was going to react on the stand during cross-examination. So she didn't get put on the stand. And she ended up being convicted and essentially sentenced to life in prison. But because she was under 18, you can't sentence them. They say it's unconstitutional to sentence them to life in prison so she was sentenced to 51 years in prison so she would be like over 60 years old when she was eligible for parole so i do want to say that all of johnny allen's friends say that there's no way that he picked centoya up for sex that they're like he didn't pick up women for sex work but there were some witnesses at trial for the defense talking about how like how he would hit on teenagers pretty consistently like it was waitresses at places that he went and how he would like have young girls with him a lot that kind of thing so believe what you want to believe about that i think that's not the point of this it is incredibly heartbreaking that he died i don't think he deserved to die nobody deserves to die Unless he was about to kill her, then she acted in self-defense. But we don't know that that's what he was doing because there wasn't a gun. But we're going to go into a little bit more of why I think that the court got it wrong the first time. I also was like, damn, wonder what happened to Cutthroat, right? About a year after Johnny Allen's death, Cutthroat was actually murdered himself. He was shot by um, Cortez Hines. They say it was gang-related, maybe even a drug deal. And the, the guy that shot him shot a police officer in Chattanooga as well. And the police officer ended up living. So Cutthroat isn't alive. Because I was like, God, he's not on any of like the documentary stuff. Like, There's nothing about him. Like, I haven't seen any pictures on Google about him. Like, where the fuck is Cutthroat? You know? Well, because he died. In 2011, there was this documentary that came out. It was called Me Facing Life, Centoya's Story. And it was at like a film festival type thing. And some attorneys saw it and were like, damn, we got to help this girl. Right? Because it was this filmmaker that ended up doing the Netflix documentary that we talked about a little bit. And it followed her for years. So these attorneys saw it and they're like, we got to help her. 
So they first filed an appeal, and my opinion on this may make some people mad. So the first thing that they tried to do was to say that, I think it was like, I don't remember if it was like post-conviction relief. I can't, I can't remember the jargon, but they said that it should have been brought up at trial that she had fetal alcohol syndrome. And so they had done a bunch of psychological tests before, like with the original trial. So when they did all the psychological testing for this appeals, whatever, the psychiatrist during testimony said, as it relates to her fetal alcohol syndrome, she's barely a person. And that pissed me right the fuck off because this guy is testifying like on her behalf. And she's like crying because he's talking about her cognitive deficits. And they said that when she was a 16-year-old, she functioned at a 10-year-old's level. And that They talked about when they read her Miranda rights because they did an interview with her where they broke down the saying, like they broke, broke it down and said, well, what does that mean? Well, what does that mean? And then she put it in her own words. And then they talked about how when she was being interviewed, they said that they were going to give her a deal if she would just like confess to it. And so They were like, we just said we would talk to the DA. We didn't say we were going to give her a deal. And so they're like, well, she didn't have the cognitive capacity to understand what you were saying, nor did she have it to understand the Miranda rights and all this. And they just kept talking about how even though she has a high IQ, she doesn't have these cognitive capabilities. And it just doesn't fit with the the girl that you see sitting in front of you. Because when you hear her talk, which you do on this documentary, because there's all of this footage of her interviews and all of these things, and it just does not fit up with who you see in front of you. Because she's so articulate. The words that she uses, I'm like, damn, that's a good way to say that. Damn, I wouldn't have thought to use those words. You know, like she's just, you know, maybe she's, very intelligent linguistically and not in other ways. I understand that there's different types of intelligence. I get that. But, I mean, he he said she's basically barely a person is what he said. I mean, what are you saying she is? I mean, like, it just, the way that they tried to diminish her cognitively to fit the fetal alcohol syndrome mold so that it could potentially change the outcome of her trial made me angry and you could see her crying and even when we were watching it Colby said she's crying because she understands what they're saying and it hurts her feelings you know because she knows it's not true about her whereas if it was somebody who really was that low cognitively picture Brendan Dassey at all of his trials when they're talking about his cognitive abilities he's looking around like he didn't have a fucking clue what they're saying Because he doesn't. Whereas she is like upset because she knows exactly what they're saying. She's like, that's not me. They also talk about how with fetal alcohol syndrome, it impacts their impulsivity and their ability to react to situations and control their reactions and all of this. And it's like, okay, you're telling me we should have let her off of a murder because she has fetal alcohol syndrome and can't control her impulses. So let's let her off 
and she can't control her impulses. So what happens to the, somebody else if they make her mad? And I'm not saying that that's what's happened in this situation, but I'm saying if you look at the precedent that it sets, yeah, you allow someone to not take responsibility for their actions because of a diagnosis that is really a stretch for her. And then what you let them out. And then what happens when she does it? Not just her. I'm saying again, think of the precedent it sets. So then what happens if it happens again, then they get out again, they get over it again. They get, you know, you just, it's just a continuous cycle. Right. And so the prosecution also brought up an important point. I think with their rebuttal was, you know, it's not the responsibility in the trial for them to go over her entire past medical history. And we've talked about this over and over and over again. At what point does someone's diagnosis stop being the reason for something? And then they hold the responsibility. I'm ADHD and I'm very fucking impulsive. But I go to the casino and I spend $300 and I can't buy food. Well, that's because I was impulsive and I went to the casino and I spent $300 and I can't buy food. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or I, if my impulsivity makes me hurt someone, well, then I still get in trouble for it because I have to be able to control my impulses. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I just don't think it's fair that I, I don't think you can use the fetal alcohol syndrome as a way to say she's not guilty. Because otherwise you would have to put her in some sort of mental institution for the rest of her life. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to, because that would mean that she's incapable of controlling her impulses. Then that means that she is a danger to society for the rest of her life. Then, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Y'all let me know what y'all think about that. But but I just, the whole time I was listening to it, I was like, that can't be. That can't be. The whole point was, though, did them leaving out the fetal alcohol syndrome, was that enough information that was left out of trial to change beyond a reasonable doubt the jury's mind. And the judge said, no, it's not. So that was denied. While in prison, Santoya finishes her GED. She starts attending college. She gets an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree from Lipscomb University, both of them finishing with a 4.0 GPA. She really works to help other inmates, and she's just living like a model prisoner. Then CNN does this story about how the laws had changed that anyone under the age of 18 cannot be considered a sex worker. They're automatically considered to be human trafficked, not considered to be a sex worker. Even if money exchanges hands, all of that, they're underage. They're not there by choice. With that law changed, they do a story on Centoya's case and say, look, if this case happened right now, she would be considered a victim. She would not have gone to trial as a quote-unquote prostitute who killed a John. And I'm using that word because that's the language that was used in. I know that the appropriate term is sex worker. But she would be considered a victim of sex trafficking by the monster cutthroat who was sex trafficking her. And that she killed someone who was having sex with an underage child. You know, it would be a totally different case when that came out in 2017 versus when that law changed versus 2004 when the crime happened. Yeah. 
You know what, though? That's so sad that a law has to change for people's perspective to change. Yeah. Because she was still that, and all they saw was a sex worker. You know, when yep. I, it doesn't matter what it is, if she's 16 and a sex worker, like, ugh. That's not right. You know, like, she's not less of a, no one's less of a person, but, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, Like, how can you look at that and just be like, that monster, she's terrible, you know? Yeah. Well, and here's the thing, too, is that, like, I really, you know, and I don't want to take away from, because we don't, we don't know what happened in that house, and I don't want to, like, oh, Johnny Allen's this terrible guy, because I don't fucking know. I don't know. I can assume all day. Right. You know, and if you ask his friends and you ask the prosecutors, she robbed him. You know, he does that work with youth groups and the church, and he took somebody in, gave him a meal, gave him a shower, and she robbed him. She robbed him and she murdered him. But he was in bed naked. Uh huh. When she shot him. So that's not normal behavior uh-huh. of you taking someone in. I know. And then she would have had to have, like, had some way back in the house if he was like, oh, okay, let me go to bed, or strip off all the clothes. Or she took his clothes off to, like, make it look like that. But even then, I feel like... Forensics would have shown, like, oh, the blood spatter, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? So for them to say, he would have never done that. Um, I'm sorry, my dude. You don't know your dude. Right. That's pretty classic, I feel like, for a typical, quote unquote, John, of someone who's going to frequent a 16-year-old sex worker. Mm-hmm. It's going to be someone who's, like, ultra-religious and who's, like, repressed, you know, or yes. whatever. Yeah. Even if they're not repressed, they're, like, hiding something or they're, you know. Yes. Well, after that story broke on CNN, it went viral because... People like Rihanna and Kim Kardashian and T.I., Snoop Dogg, LeBron James, Alyssa Milano, a lot of different celebrities tweeted about it. And it became this hashtag free Centoya Brown sensation. It brought a lot of conversations to the table of she's a person of color, which is why I mentioned that to begin with. She's a person of color. She has this history, the familial history with mental health. You know, the Me Too movement had just kind of taken some steam that was part of the law changing. And, you know, it just it just hit at this peak time. And the governor for Tennessee was on the way out. So the governor can only serve two terms, which is eight years, and then they're done. So January, starting his eighth and final year, Centoya and her team decided okay this is the time because that's that's when you got to hit a governor for clemency Mm -hmm. and all because that's when they're like okay they're not going to be up for re-election they're going out it's their last year they don't give a fuck what anybody thinks yeah so that's when you got to hit them up for shit like that so she's going to ride the wave of the hashtag free centoya the law change he's on his last year it's time to hit him up for clemency So how it works in Tennessee is first it has to go to the parole board who hears the case from her, from all of her witnesses, from the victim's family, and then they right then make recommendations that they then give to the governor who makes the ultimate decision. 
And it's so interesting that one of Centoya's witnesses on her behalf was one of the prosecutors for one of her appeals. And when that prosecutor was, well, prosecuting one of her appeals, she was actually in one of his classes at the university. Oh, wow. And he didn't put it together until after, like, after it was all over. And then he was like, wait, Centoya Brown. Centoya Brown. Yeah. Is this the same? Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. It just kind of changed his opinion of what you think is justice. But why? Because of her age. And I, I don't know. Because... That's all. He, that's all on the paper. Her age. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Because then he met her and she won him over. I guess. But yeah. you're so right. It's like okay. Oh, so she's educated. Oh man. You know. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, you you literally judged her before that anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you're so right. I don't know. No, you're so right. But in that in that documentary, that I was like, oh, and now I'm like, damn, God, you got I mean, me, Donna. <laughs> You're so right, though. And he I mean, said it more a, eloquently. It's a good thing that, I mean, that's a powerful thing for the prosecutor to be at your parole hearing being like, hey, I got this one wrong. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, yeah, like, that doesn't make me think he should get a medal for it. Yeah. Well, even just getting a meeting with the Tennessee Board of Parole there's only like a 2% chance that she would even get that meeting, much less that, you know, so it was a huge deal that she was able to get that meeting. So they ask her the story. She's, again, just so eloquent in her words. It just, I mean, I could just like listen to her talk because she just expresses herself in a way that is just like, she just like writes a book with her words, you know, yeah. and it's just like, how do you, captivate me so well with your words i mean it's like a classical piece just the way you know and like her Mm -hmm. voice is so soothing too i'm like keep talking please asmr i was about to say you have your new asmr Uh uh-huh centoya brown does asmr well actually she's (laughs) centoya brown long now because she got she got married while she was in prison to jamie long or jay long who was part of the r&b group pretty ricky no clue who that is what they got married like while she was in jail before all of this even happened. So anyway, so there were five people, I think on the parole board Two voted to grant clemency, having her like she served 15 years at that point. Like, okay, this is your 15 years. Like girl, go home Two voted that it should be reduced from 51 years to 25. And then two were like, Nah, bitch, serve your 51. But again, that doesn't matter because ultimately the decision is with the governor. That's just their recommendation. And then the governor gets in and goes, oh, shit, they were completely divided. Cool. You know, but the governor ended up granting clemency for 15 years. And so that was in early of the year. So she had like seven months left that she had to serve before she was able to get out. So she was eventually released, and she has 10 years of parole that she has to serve. Um, But she was released on August 7th of 2019. Johnny Allen's friends and family said that, quote, our hearts are broken today, 
as the governor has decided to grant Johnny's murderer clemency, the activist mob, with their repetition of Centoya's lies and slander, managed to prevail against justice. But Centoya continues to do the same work that she was doing in prison. She's working to bring more attention and help to girls who have been victims of human trafficking. She's written um, a book called Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System. So that Netflix documentary that we've been talking about was called Murder to Mercy, the Centoya Brown story. And that just came out April 29th of 2020. But I should say that Centoya and her husband say that that is an unauthorized documentary. Like they had no part in that. And she said that she is working to basically release her own that tells like kind of the whole story. But she said like she hopes that it highlights the inequalities and the injustices in our system. But my best guess is that because that director had probably she'd signed over all rights to that footage from that very first one. And he was like able to do whatever he wants to with it forever and ever and ever. And so he did. And Netflix bought it. Yeah. But it was a really good and powerful documentary. I think it really did a good job of highlighting the mental health disorders in her family And I think it did a really good job of showing how much she grew from a 16-year-old to a 31-year-old when she got out. But some of the critics of the documentary talk about that they don't really discuss the injustices as it relates to her being a person of color. So that's kind of why I wanted to touch on that just a little bit. I liked it. I'm so glad I did not watch it because I was so close to watching it. I would have been heartbroken if you had seen that. You really would have. I really would have. I've been like, fuck it. No, I'm just kidding. I still would have done the story, but because I worked really hard on this one. <laughs> I like it. And I'm so glad that she's out. Me too. It's hard because, you know, yeah, there wasn't a gun. There's really no way of officially proving that it was self-defense, especially like the way his hands were positioned in the crime scene photos. But on the other hand, like if he was just kind of like reaching out and she shot him and his hands just collapsed. I mean, yeah, I could see how maybe it landed like, I don't know. But ultimately, shit went south when he picked up an underaged girl to have sex with. Yeah. Allegedly. But is that victim blaming? I don't know. You know what I mean by that? Like, is it like saying, well, she was drunk at a bar and got in a car with somebody, you know? Yes and no. Like, yes and no. He is doing something illegal, truth like that's the difference he's doing something knowingly illegal so true so eh, you know but that doesn't mean he deserved to die and you're not saying that right you just said that's when it went south that's when they met and like that night will never be the same their lives will never be the same yeah and and you're right we'll never know because also she was 16 she was so scared She was so beaten down. She was so everything. Just his body weight on top of her and thinking, oh, my God, there's a like he might have a gun here because he's showed all of his guns. Right. And you have to think, too, like she's literally in fight or flight mode, like survival mode on and any perceived threat. She's going to react in a way to save her own life. 
any any minuscule perceived threat. Yeah. And she perceived that as a threat because she had just rejected him and what like what was he doing? Right. He could have just been turning over to get a condom to to rape her. Right. But even then she still Okay, he's turning over to get a condom to rape her. Well, is she still not protecting herself right. by shooting him? Is she still not? I mean, for that matter, I mean, he could be fucking kidnapping her. She's 16, and he's got her in his house. Mm-hmm. At the very least, it's fucking statutory rape, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, at the very least, she's protecting herself against some sort of crime. I mean, who's to say? Like, how do you determine? I mean... She's a 16-year-old, and he's a 40-something-year-old man with military experience. He could have killed her with his bare hands. I mean, gun or not, he easily overpowered her. I don't know. This is just a heartbreaking story all around. But she grew so much from the time that, you know, just this meek child, the footage from when she was 16, Mm -hmm. to just this empowered woman who was speaking on her own behalf to say, no, I know that I should not have killed him. But I also know that these are the things that are wrong in this situation. Right. And these are the things that I've done to better myself. And I was a child and I shouldn't be held to the same standard as an adult. Yeah. And I just hope that Johnny Allen's family and friends find peace. Yeah. All right. Well, my story is, of course, different from your story because it's about ghosts. But, and this is a stretch of a segue. Oh, God. I know. Hear me out. I feel like Centoya was fighting an unseen evil, the justice system. Okay. And the family in my story is fighting unseen evil as well. Okay. 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 I said it was a stretch. But okay, this story takes place in Hanover, Pennsylvania. And a little about Hanover. It was founded in 1727. And even though it is a small, like, you know how they say small, sleepy town, it has around 15,000 people. But it's known as the snack food capital of the world. Uh, sign me the fuck right up. Right? I was like, um, I didn't know that existed, but I want to go there now. Um, I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> there is some historic significance, too. There's a battle there during the Civil War, and it's pretty close to Gettysburg. So, I mean, it's seen a lot of, a lot of war, a lot of everything. Okay. Well, in 2007, Deanna and Tom... They were living in this apartment and were ready to start their new life together because they had both recently gotten divorced. And when they found each other, they just knew they were meant for each other. And this was Deanna's third marriage. Her previous two were pretty toxic and abusive. So Tom was a breath of fresh air for her. So they started to look for a house to enjoy their new life together. One of Tom's co-workers at the pharmacy he worked at told Tom about this cute little house that was up for sale. Tom told Deanna, hey, they're going to go check it out just as a courtesy for his coworker, but like no expectations. Tom wanted to have a little land and be on the outskirt of town. And this house was smack dab in town 
on the corner of Maple and Monroe Streets. Um, it's funny that he worked at a pharmacy and I went straight to on the corner of like happy and healthy. Me too. Oh my God. I almost made that joke. That's hilarious. So they go there. He just really wanted his coworker off of his back. You know, his coworker was probably me and it's like, hey, did you go see that house I told you about? Hey, did you go see that house? So they pull up and the moment they pulled up, Deanna was like, oh my God, I fucking love this house. And it was nothing spectacular. It's cute. It's charming. It's brick with a porch. You know, like it's it's cute, but nothing that is just, holy shit, this house is perfect. You know, but it reminded her of her childhood home in Kentucky. And there were so many little characteristics about the house that was similar or the same as her childhood home. And she was determined to have it. But Tom wasn't in love with it and was like, dude, I told you we were just doing this as a favor. But Deanna wasn't taking no as an answer. She even borrowed money from her dad to use as a down payment as kind of a seal the deal thing with Tom. Like, talk that. We're getting the house. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like a house that he didn't even want? He was kind of indifferent about it, but like she was obsessed with it. Because he was like, well, to get this house, we would need like $30,000 down payment. Well, they didn't have it. And so that's when she went to her dad. Gotcha. You know, and was like, oh, and now we have the money. Cool, cool, cool. So what's your next excuse? I'm going to check that off too, you know? Yeah. Well, Deanna had taken some pictures of the house to send to her parents to be like, oh my God, look, it has the same kitchen flooring or whatever. Well, when they got back to the apartment... She reviewed the pictures and probably to like compress them to send to her parents, all that shit. Well, Deanna saw some weird light anomalies and whatnot, but when she questioned it, Tom was logical and told her, you know, hey, the place doesn't have curtains. It's probably just light coming in, reflecting from outside. And she's like, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. And then there was a shadow and she was like, okay, what about this dark shadow then? He's like, yeah probably just some dust or something on your lens. And it was like hardwood floors. So it could have just been like weird with that. He was like, again, it just has nothing in there. So anything from outside could easily disturb those pictures. And so even though that kind of made Deanna go, hmm, she was still drawn to this house in an obsessive way. And what Tom had said made sense to her. So she just kind of wrote that off. And so, as the saying goes, happy wife-to-be in this case, happy life. So, they moved in. And as soon as they got all of their stuff in there, still in boxes and stuff, but as soon as they got everything in there, the atmosphere changed for Deanna. Tom's a pharmacist, and she said it wasn't unheard of for him to have to work 12-hour days at certain times. So, she would be home alone. While Deanna was unpacking and Tom was working, she felt like someone would walk up behind her and just kind of watch her. And just little subtle feelings, but you can easily say that's all imagination, new house jitters, being alone. She had just started a new job. They were both newly divorced, starting this new chapter together, you know, so it was just like, it's a lot. Another thing that happened kind of early on that Deanna didn't really tie into the haunting was her cat. They had brought her in and she was an older cat. 
she was 14 years old. Deanna had had her that her whole life, the cat's whole life. She was in perfect health, but she immediately reacted to the house where she was skittish all the time and would hide in closets. You know, she really didn't want to eat, all of that. And so her perfect health started to diminish and do so rapidly. She had gotten to the point of no help, and so they had to put her down. There was nothing more that they could do for her, and she was in pain. And this all happened in a span of a few months. But it's easy to reason out that she's an older cat, it's a new location, you know, whatever. But then there was this one day that it was just unusually warm for that season in Hanover. And so Deanna was outside raking up some of the like dead grass, leaves, and just shit like that. And out of nowhere, this old woman, like picture old hunched over woman, gray hair, homemade looking dress or like house coat kind of thing. Okay, so Beauty and the Beast. Got it, got it. (laughs) And she had a three-legged dog. And she had just appeared, said hello to Deanna. So, of course, Deanna was polite and responded. Well, then the old lady was like, you know what happened in your house. And Deanna was like, uh, no. And the old lady said that a young boy died in the basement. So, this took Deanna aback a little bit. Like, what the fuck? They left that tidbit out of the closing. Right? So, she's like, okay, hold on. Let me ask you a few questions. So, she turned just to propped the rake up and stuff. And when she turned back around, that old lady was gone. And Deanna's house, again, was a corner lot. So she could have easily saw this lady walking for a while, but there was no one around. So again, strange, but she's like, okay, weird, but who knows? You know, she might have went into someone's house. I don't know. Like, who knows? Then came the odors. There would be fecal matter, urine, body odor, all mixed together in a really potent concoction. And to tie in there, some cigar smoke, too. But it would just appear and disappear. And Tom was like, it's probably a dead animal in the basement. But, like, before he could find said dead animal, the smell would be gone. And Deanna's like, if it was a dead animal... And you haven't found it yet, it would still stink. Right. It doesn't just go away because you're looking for it. Right. Hell, we've all, if you don't live out in the country, you don't know, but like a polecat or a skunk, if they get hit, that smells there for a couple of days and their body's not even there. And then other small things happened like the sound of phantom footsteps or children running, but it was like on the ceiling Doors closing on their own. And there were even times where the room would be empty, but you could hear someone crying. And Deanna was the one who seemed to be targeted by all of this. And Tom was kind of annoyed because Deanna fought tooth and nail to get this house. And now she's saying that she wasn't comfortable there. She didn't feel safe. And he's like, you ask for this. And now we're stuck because the market crashed. So they were upside down on it through no fault of their own because they were upside down with that and then paying back the 30000 that her dad had given them. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, suck it up, buttercup. Yeah. We got to do what we got to do kind of thing. Right. 
Well, one of Deanna's daughters, Amber, she had just started college and had previously been living with her dad, but she thought this would be a better fit for her. I don't know. It might have been closer to campus. I'm not sure. And I guess I should tell you the layout of the house now. The house has three stories, but the second story is a converted attic to a master suite. And then the normal layout of the house is the ground floor. And then there's a basement. She stayed in one of the first floor bedrooms. And when Amber would go to bed, she just got an uneasy feeling. And her room felt darker than it should have been with the windows and whatnot. Especially at night, because there were streetlights and such, but it would be pitch black inside of her room. And then she started hearing footsteps outside of her room. So she started sleeping with the door closed, and she would sleep facing the door, scared that she was going to be attacked in her sleep. But her fears were really only at night. Until one morning, she woke up to what sounded like someone frantically opening and slamming shut all the cabinet doors in the kitchen. So she got up, ran in there, and they were all just opened. And she was like, what the fuck? And all the while, her mom was asleep. So she went and woke her mom up and was like, what is happening? And I think this was the turning point for Deanna because someone else was experiencing things too. Because Tom didn't experience anything that he could not rationalize away. There was another time when Deanna and Amber were in the basement doing laundry. And all of a sudden, the basement went dark. And it was a creepy basement. You know, they only went down there to do laundry and get possessed by demons, apparently. I mean, I feel like you said that in, like, episode four. I know. And it still holds true. Yeah. Basements. Demons and laundry. Yep. (laughs) So no one really stayed down there. Even like, I think the two cats that they got after the older cat, they put their litter box down there and the cats would like shit and get. Like it wasn't just like, oh, let me go over here. Let me do this. Let me, no, 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 no. Like let's, let's get back up there. But anyway, so the basement went dark and again, they're like, oh my God, the power's off and we're stuck down here. Like, let's get up there. Well, when they got up the stairs, the power wasn't out in the home. It was just turned off in the basement only. Wow. Yeah. And then there was this time that there was this huge elk head that was mounted on the wall in Tom's man cave, a.k.a. the den, you know. Mm -hmm. It fell three times to the floor. The first time, Tom really believed Amber was playing a joke on him or had a party when they were out of town or something. But he had locked the door and had the key. And this elk head was like anchored into the wall and everything. It wasn't going anywhere. Like his brother-in-law helped him put it up, I think. And so it was like, (laughs) it should have stayed there forever. But Tom was like, no, 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 no. Like this didn't just like land on the floor because it wasn't smashed or anything. So he really thought... Some guys came over at a party of Amber's and, like, as a joke, they got the elk head down and just, like, put it on the ground, you know? But then it happened two more times and, you know, you can't really rationalize that away. Later on, this would be the room where Tom and Deanna both thought that they were having heart attacks at one point. And as soon as they would leave the house to go to the ER, they would feel better. 
And you know, that moment is such a hard decision of, which I know, you know, because we've had those moments so many times of like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. It's bad enough. Like we got to go to the ER. Mm -hmm. Like it's okay. I have to go. Yeah. Like that moment that you finally make the decision of, okay, I'm hurting that bad or, okay, I'm that sick. Take me to the ER. And then you fucking walk out the house and you're fine. Like, could you imagine? Oh my gosh. No. And it was really hard for Deanna to imagine. She even Googled like symptoms of schizophrenia because, you know, she would hear sounds and all this stuff that Tom's like, it's squirrels in the attic or, you know, squirrels on the roof. It's this, it's that. And she's like, that doesn't sound like squirrels, you know, but it just wasn't targeting him. Well, they lived close to a church. So she walked over there and just asked the minister, hey, can you come bless this house? She didn't tell her the goings on of the house. Just like, hey, we moved in, you know, like we want just a blessing over the house. And so the minister was like, yeah, of course. And it was a female minister. Well, shit kept falling through. But finally, the minister was like, okay, today's the day. Unbeknownst to the Simpsons, that's their last name, by the way. Deanna and Tom Simpson. Because, uh, spoiler alert, they do get married down the road. But the minister came, but she has like six of her deacons with her. Well, Deanna went to introduce everyone, and the minister was like, Oh, this must be your husband. And she was like, Oh, well, we're not married just yet. And that like flipped a switch in the lady. She just started yelling that they were against God's law. What? That they were living in sin, that they were fornicators. And like when she got to the door, like, you know, she was just, she could not have it. She got to the door. She turned back around and was like letting them have that final thought. And they could smell like burning wood. And when she left, there was a shoe print looking burn on their wood floor. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, and okay, if really and truly we want to get with like old school Bible stuff, like, oh, they're fornicators and they shouldn't live together before marriage and all of that. If we really want to go old school Bible stuff, then she wouldn't be allowed to be a minister as a female. So. So true. Do you really want to go there, lady? Right. Which I completely disagree with but on both ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, hello, Colby and I live together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And you I mean, fornicators. We have sex. So, I mean, <laughs> sorry, mom. She don't listen. She Just doesn't kidding. listen. <laughs> They'd have a stroke with all the fucks. <laughs> the fornication and the words. <laughs> <laughs> well, to add to the weirdness, a few weeks later, the minister had a freak accident. It was at a church carnival in the parking lot. There was some accident, and the minister was involved in it, and she was then wheelchair-bound. Oh, my God. And she, like, something just changed in her, you know, and she never returned to the church as the minister. So looking back, Deanna feels really badly about everything. Like, she got this person involved who wasn't strong enough or something, you know, to fight off this house's evilness. It's like the entities brought out the true thoughts or beliefs of that woman, but in the most malicious way and changed her. And then as a lesson to them both, she was in the accident, like a warning to Deanna. Like, if you try to get help, this is what happens. 
And to that other lady, like, don't help. But that if that was that lady's true thoughts, I mean, that was her true thoughts. And, I mean, I think it's interesting that that lady just, like, brought all those deacons and stuff there, too. Like, if yeah. she was going to bless it, like, why did she bring all those... I don't know. People, you know what I mean? Yeah. That was weird, too. It was like, if something really did happen in the house, like that random old lady that appeared said it did, mm-hmm. then maybe it was something that the people in the town knew, and so that's why she brought those old, like, right. I picture, like, all the deacons is like, all these old, old white people, dudes. yeah. <laughs> and so, she brought them all there, because they were like, whoa, wait, wait, this is that house where that kid died. Maybe yeah. we should, like, bring in reinforcement. And then, all that happened. I don't know. I just, I, I, I don't think they, they have no blame. In this. Yeah, no, that's what I think, too. Like, they kind of knew, hey, 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 this has some, you know, history with this. Because, again, I picture old older people, too. But what Deanna's talking about, not saying, like, oh, this lady is totally against, you know, living together before marriage or whatever. But, you know, like, everyone has those little qualms that they have. But this just brought it to the extreme extreme. And it was malicious to make her look bad, to make them feel terrible. Yeah. And fearful. Yeah. And so, you know, it was like it just amplified everything. But that was enough to Amber. She moved out about six months after they moved in because all of that's happened in these six months. Deanna brought it up in casual conversation with her coworkers at work. Because, again, she had just started the job before they bought the house. So she was tiptoeing, you know, not really wanting to feel like an outcast at work, being like, hey, y'all know about ghosts? Do y'all believe in this? Do y'all, you know? But if she felt like that at work, when she also didn't feel welcomed at home, she just had nowhere then. So she was really tiptoeing. Which is no way to live. Right. But luckily, they listened, and one coworker even told her of a local group. And this was the first group that Deanna let investigate. And Deanna's a little excited, but a little nervous, because she had to tell Tom, hey, I'm going to let these strangers come in, tell me about ghosts, because Tom still didn't really understand what was going on, and he never felt anything negative there. He was more than a little skeptical. And was like, okay, honey, you do what you want, but I'm going to go get some beers with my friends while you do these shenanigans. Ugh. Insert mega eye roll at the condescension. Well, this paranormal group, they were just uh, not very experienced. And they were like, yeah, this is a haunted house. They got some EVPs. They did some blessings. And they were like, we feel like the ghosts here are friendly. There's this boy ghost who's young, and he just wants you to be his mother. So invite him and the others to have a seat at the table, and all will be well. Just welcome them in. Oh, shit. And Deanna was like, what the fuck? And she didn't do what they recommended. And I feel like the entities influence that group, too. Like, okay, we'll show ourselves, but as this. And tell them this. Because they were so inexperienced that they went along with what they were getting and didn't, you know, know like how demons can change forms. They can, you know, like entities can change what they want. A la Sally's house with, it's a demon, but it's like, oh, she's just a three-year-old girl. Right. Anyways, she was like, fuck, I just did this for nothing. And she's fearful of what the house may do to get back at her. Because again, 
anytime she had someone to come help her, aka the minister, it seemed like the house would give it back to her threefold. And she was right. She started seeing things such as a time as she was leaving the bathroom, she got a real strong metallic scent and looked down and saw that there was blood smeared everywhere. So she freaked her freak thinking, oh my God, I'm bleeding. Something's wrong with me. But when she called for Tom and he came in, they both looked around and all the blood was gone. So that just drove a wedge further between her and Tom because she felt foolish and he was scared that she was actually seeing things. And what if her mental health was in jeopardy? Like, what's going on? In the master bedroom, Deanna never felt at ease. She would hear a woman say, go get the children or go hide the children. And she would have these dreams of two men who would approach her and try to talk to her. Well, one night it went beyond a dream because she felt her hair being stroked and touched. I know you'd like that, Carrie. But she opened her eyes and there were two men at the side of her bed. I mean, I may have been into that like pre-Colby. (laughs) Like the two men on the side of my bed, you know? Oh, that part? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely into the hair stroking Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, they looked at her and she said that she could just feel their hatred. And it was like they were saying, get the fuck out of my house. What are you doing here? And then something happened that would make her stop going upstairs altogether. One night she was going upstairs and it was like two strong hands just firmly pressed against her and shoved her backwards. She fell down the stairs, kind of like skidded on the floor, and she screamed for Tom. He came, and she just couldn't move. She couldn't breathe. It was like, you know, the wind was knocked out of her, but it wasn't even that. It was like something was holding her down. It was just really controlling everything about her. They finally got her up and she went and laid in the guest room on the first floor and like just cried herself to sleep because she is my mama through and through. She refused to go by ambulance to the hospital or anything, but she was like, I'll just go to my primary doctor tomorrow. Well, she went, got an x-ray and ended up having a fractured tailbone. Mm. And also is you through and through because you are your mama's child. Yes. So after that, she started sleeping in the first floor bedroom because she was so scared. But that didn't save her from the nightmares. She dreamt of her being in a cemetery and she could see some like levitating hooded monks and they were coming toward her. Then all of a sudden out of the ground, like this eight foot tall black figure with a hat, red eyes, he came up and like, captured her, grabbed her, and she woke up, and he was standing beside her bed. She couldn't really breathe. He was holding her down, and he told her that her God could not help her now. And she said, like, the upper part of him was male. The lower part was almost serpent-like, but in that, like, wispy smoke, black mist kind of way. One night, Deanna was laying down in bed, and this was just after her dad had passed. So she was talking to her dad, and just, she had always been close to him, and just grieving his death, because again, they were so close, 
and she could just always talk to him. And he would believe her. He would be there for her. And she ended up crying herself to sleep. And the next thing she knew, she was dreaming. She heard her father say, Dee Dee. And so she called out, Daddy, where are you? She sat up in bed, looked all over, and then in the corner, her dad was sitting in her rocking chair. So she gushed about how much she loved and missed him. And then he said, it's time to go. And she's like, what? No, like, wait, wait, wait. I want to tell you so much more. And then in this like warped, deeper thing, it was like, it's time to go. You know, like. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Who'd you just turn into, uh daddy? And it morphed into that black shadow figure with the red eyes and the hat. Uh Uh-uh. And he, like, kind of laughed at her, Uh -uh. you know? And that right there is just so creepy because he knew exactly what to be to get her in that vulnerable spot. And that they're always listening Mm -hmm. and stuff. Ugh. Well, then there was this incident where Deanna received a text message from one of her neighbors. And it was like, get outside. You have to see this. And so her and Tom went outside. But when they opened their front door and stepped down onto their porch, locusts were being crunched under their shoes with each step. Absolutely not. Right. There was a whole swarm around their house. No one else's, just their home. And when they finally made it to the road where everyone else was, the swarm just dissipated upward, like into the air, like nothing was wrong. And that was so scary and odd and everything but tom still didn't believe this was paranormal he's like oh something about the house must you know have attracted these blogs you know again he's you in this you know like always looking for like the environmental factor of why they were attracted to this house but years later tom would start believing more Because he would begin to have his own experiences that he could not reason away. Like when they were both in the living room, just chilling, watching TV. When two of their cats both woke up and started to like hiss toward the basement door. So Tom and Deanna exchanged glances. And then they saw there was this black mist slowly coming from underneath the basement, wisp of the mist going up to the ceiling and into the kitchen. And Tom was like, what the fuck? So he followed it, thinking it might have been smoke or something. Like, what? But before his eyes, the wisp of mist, is that a title to a book or something? It sounds like it. It turned into something like a slow-moving cyclone. And there were these faint outlines of arms coming out of it. And when Tom thought it couldn't get more freaky, the mist growled. And then it was gone into the ceiling as quickly as it had appeared from the basement. And to this day, there is a dark stain that they're unable to remove or paint over. What? Yeah. There is a moment when the evil entity made some noise and Deanna thought it was one of her cats. So, you know, she did the sound, called it over, and it felt like a cat at first, you know, rubbing against her. But then she smelled that rotten, trashy smell. And she felt like she was unable to move or talk. And it's that evil entity that terrorizes Deanna a lot. It morphed into that black mist with the hat and the eyes. There is one entity there that 
Deanna believes is her protector. Like she would knock on the window three times or on the wall three times. And if Deanna sees her, she knows it's time for her to leave the bedroom because she believes that the woman is one of the man's victims. And so that's why she warns her Mm -hmm. right before this is happening, you know? Well, after this, they were in the kitchen table just discussing everything And Deanna was getting furious that Tom just couldn't admit something was wrong with her house. And Tom was getting upset that he couldn't understand what his wife was going through. He felt helpless. And, you know, he's like, I want to protect you, but I don't even know to protect you from what? How do I do this? He couldn't wrap his head around it. And so he got up from the table and he's just like, I'm not having any of this. And then he suddenly yelped and grabbed his arm rolled up his sleeve, and there were scratches in the shape of an X or a cross, depending on how you looked at it. Could be either. And then, you know, he sat back down. They both broke down and just hugged each other. And that was his point that he truly began to believe. There's no reasoning that away. There's nothing. He finally understood what Deanna had been putting up with this entire time because she would get bit, you know, scratched, all of this. And he never would. And now he understands like, oh, that's painful. Oh, it came from nowhere, you know? Yeah. Well, in 2014, there was this local news crew that wanted to do a segment on them because they heard they were going to be on a TV show. So they were like, oh, let's make an appointment to visit the house, film some stuff inside because they about to be national news. They were skeptical and they just wanted to see what the fuss was about. It was Fox 43, and the photographer, Drew, he heard some unexplainable noise in the house, specifically when he was in the basement, and that was the main place where, like, you would get that nausea feeling and a dull headache and everything. Well, while doing an interview in the kitchen at the table with Deanna, Nick did something off camera, and because he's a cameraman, he's, you know, just filming this interview, Well, you can see Deanna ask, like, what happened, and then she asked if he got scratched. And he said that he felt his hand burning, and when she asked about being scratched, he inspected his hand and his arm, and there on his wrist was indeed a scratch. And she's being filmed. You know, there's no way that she could have just done it to him out of the blue. Well, Katie, the news anchor, she was touched and pinched. They all saw light anomalies, heard some weird sounds. And so, you know, it's like, okay, this might have some validity to it. Okay. Well, four years later, another news anchor, Grace, for the same syndicate, her and her crew went in for a Halloween special. While they were doing their walkthrough, Deanna was telling them that she had learned that a young boy was shot in the head in that room. And the spirit liked to make himself known. And while she's explaining all of this, one of the like ghost equipment starts going off. Well, the camera guy tried to reset it and then like make it go off again. Like, okay, it must have been this equipment that was by it or whatever, but couldn't. Well, then later, while reviewing the audio clips, they found some evidence. One camera that was upstairs recorded this strange sound, and it sounds like a man whispering, go. They also captured a door slamming, which 
none of the doors slammed inside the house, and they caught a deep growl recorded in the living room. And they had some, you know, audio and uh, just technical difficulties and stuff. Seriously, like, I can't go over everything they experienced, they being the Simpsons, because they were in the house for like 11 years. They've been on several different shows, such as The Dead Files, My Haunted House, Ghost Hunters, and Joni Mahan wrote a book about Deanna's experiences. Deanna has been on several podcasts, too, and I listened to Grave Talks and Darkness Radio when preparing this. So on The Dead Files, they were able to get some information on the property's past, and the property has seen a lot of loss. The first person to ever live on the property was John Diggs. He was a well-to-do Maryland plantation owner, and he was granted some land in Hanover when it was founded in 1727, like 10,000 acres. And he was known as a pretty ruthless enforcer of his land because there were other settlers around him who were just like on the outskirts of his land. And so he would run them off if they didn't want to pay And usually that was by threatening with guns and stuff like that. Like picture Yellowstone style. Y'all know the TV show? Y'all know. Well, in 1752, John Diggs sent two of his sons to do the intimidation tactics that had worked for so long. And this one settler, you know, the pesky settler, his name was Martin Kitzmiller. Martin called his son Jacob for reinforcement. So Jacob came armed with like a shotgun during the skirmish between Dudley Diggs, fantastic name, and Jacob Kitzmiller. Pal, the gun went off. I just love that you said skirmish. (laughs) Well, Dudley was the one who was shot and he died from his wounds, unfortunately. Hmm. There is a coroner's inquest and trial because Martin and Jacob turned themselves in and they were like, hey, it was self-defense. Well, they were acquitted because the court agreed it was accidental self-defense, basically. But here's the thing. The judge pointed out that John Diggs, in fact, did not own all of that land. So he lost one of his sons and his land. Damn. Yeah, two of his most treasured things. And he never recovered from his losses. He moved back to Maryland. And by this time, he was not the fancy schmancy landowner he was before. He's broke now. Mm-hmm. Karma's a bitch, isn't it, Johnny boy? <laughs> well, he died in 1760. But here's another thing. Dudley Diggs, again, fantastic name. Mm-hmm. He's buried on the property. Oh, and some other stuff that they would hear Tom and Deanna would be gunshots. But Tom was like, oh, it's a car backfiring or, you know, whatever. But it's like kind of hearing this story and then just knowing it's by like Civil War shit. You know, it's like, no, those were gunshots. Just not of this world gunshots. Yeah. Well, after some more digging, couldn't help myself there they were able to find another person who lived on the property before the Simpsons. Her name was Lydia Small, and she lost four children to drowning accidents. Mm. The first was a year and a half old daughter, and it was down a well. So the well pump was out of order like the fucking, you know, McDonald's ice cream machine is all the time. (laughs) 
So they were just getting the water with a bucket through a small opening by the pump. Like they took away one of the like planks, the wood planks, and got it that way. Well, it was through that opening that the daughter fell into the well and died. Hmm. The second incident involved two children at once. On that day, her four-year-old son named Dewey and seven-year-old daughter Florence, they were playing down by the stone quarry on the property. Dewey fell in, and their older sister, she was 12, Irene, was close by and saw it. She jumped in and tried to save him, but unfortunately, they both passed away. And Florence witnessed that. And the fourth accident was Florence. Lydia, the mom, and Florence were picking raspberries by the quarry, and Florence fell in. But this wasn't it for Lydia. In 1907, she had a son. His name was John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. I was just about to say that. (laughs) His name was my name, too. Thank you. Well, John Jacob was only one, and it was cited in the paper that he died suddenly of convulsions. Mm. Then soon after, her husband died as well. He worked at the quarry. He was crushed to death by some of the limestone rocks that, like, the cable snapped and they fell back down on him kind of thing. And again, a limestone quarry on the property, like, on the property line, not just of, like, this house, but on that 10,000-acre kind of plot. It's up in, it's close to where the house was, but still. Well, Lydia lived until 1939 with all of that hurt. And they say her body and soul just eventually gave out and she passed away peacefully. I mean, amazing that it was peaceful, but yeah, it wasn't a peaceful life. No. On one of the podcasts I listened to, Deanna said that Amy off camera, you know, or it was probably on camera but got cut. But she said that she really doesn't think that those were all just accidents. Not saying that Lydia did anything, but like the property, you know, whatever's there, that evil entity had something to do with it. Because it's like four of her children died by drowning. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. Yeah. And for Florence and her to be there picking raspberries, I don't know. How did Florence fall in? Was she too close? If I saw my two siblings die at that place, like, I'd be more fearful to even go buy it. Like, it's just one of those things. Like, could it have been influenced by something? You know? On air, on the dead files, Amy told Deanna that all the time she thought she was dreaming It's likely that she wasn't, that it was really happening to her, being held down by that tall, misty figure with the hat and the red eyes that smelled like rotting trash. Yeah. And it was so gross. Like, Amy, when she was in that room and she was describing that that entity, she said he smelled her, like, all the way up. And he would say, like, I smell you. I can taste you. I know you. Gross. Yes. And she said, like, she felt violated. So just imagine Deanna for 11 years feeling this, you know. And he would say that about her to Amy. You know, like, she's mine. 
I know her. I know everything about, you know, like all of this. She belongs to me. But Amy did say that she thought she thought there was light at the end of the tunnel. And the first thing they needed to do was call in a male witch who was also a medium that he needs to be very dominant. The bigger, the better, because the male spirit is intimidated by males who are very masculine. And I was like, okay, I dig it little Tom, Amy, but okay. But I get it. And the Simpsons could not be there while they're doing it. So like consider it a little mini vacay. But the male needs to call all the dead women to him because they would help him summon the evil dead male. And then they could put him somewhere in his forever, you know, resting place that he wouldn't be able to harm anyone else. But then on the third day, that male witch needs to go to the basement and banish an entity that stays in the basement. And that should rid their property of all the things. And they did follow through with the instructions and the activity ceased as of the airing of the dead files. But while they, like before they had gotten the male witch out there, John Zaffis, who people called the godfather of paranormal, he investigated the house and he told Deanna that they had to get out before it was too late. Deanna said in an interview that John told her, you need to get out of here, D. It's ancient. You have to leave. This thing has been here on the land for millions of years, and it's known about your existence before you were born. What? Right? And they did move out in like 2018, 2019. And it was kind of unfortunate how they were finally able to afford to move out. But Deanna's mom passed and she received some inheritance. So that helped them not be upside down in their house. And the house sat on the market for like eight months. Two people looked, but no one wanted to purchase. And luckily... Tom and Deanna had some friends who knew all about the haunting and stuff, and they were into the paranormal. So Deanna and Tom are renting it out to them right now. And they've had some activity, but nothing to the level of what Deanna and Tom had. It's not malicious. It's just some activity there. Yet. Yet. But I will say that Deanna... She does still feel that protector that she had, the lady who would tap on the window. She said that before she had left, she talked to the spirit and, you know, was just like, pass over. You're okay. Like, you've done everything you could here. You know, like, thank you for everything. But like, we're moving on. I want you to move on and all of that. But they were in their new house and she heard the three taps on the window and she was like, oh, my gosh. What is this? But she said that she could just feel that it was like love and not not anything like a warning like it was before. It was just like, no, I choose to stay here with you. So that's the story of the haunting of Deanna Simpson. Tom Simpson too, but like... No, Deanna. Right. And it's called like the Hanover Haunting. If you want to look up that kind of stuff on the Dead Files, that episode was called Assaulted, you know, because again, there's just so much. I mean, they wrote a book about it, you know, like it's, it's a lot. Oh my gosh, you just can't cover it all. And 
they endured it for a long time. But they're better, you know, her and Tom are better. And he was never mean, but she felt like the house really drove a wedge between them because it wanted to, it needed to. And everyone that she has talked to told her that this house did choose her because there were multiple offers on that house and all of them fell through for a reason once they put their offer in and they got the house. You know, and again, it like called to her. She was obsessive about it, you know, to the point where like she said that she would drive by after work just to look inside before they bought it, you know, and just she had to have it. And they said that the house probably saw her and could just sense what she had been through and what she had just dealt with all of her life, not all of her life, but in her past two marriages and everything. And so like, yeah, I can mold her. I can manipulate her. I can get her, you know. Fuck that. Fuck that fucking house. Yep. And sadly it happened, but she fought back. Yes, she did. And like, she really researched everything she could, you know, like she, even in all of these interviews, when someone tells her something, she's like, Oh, Send that to me. Like, let me go down that rabbit hole. Like, oh, I haven't heard about that. You know, let me learn more about this because she is her best advocate. Yes. We have seen that time and time again, though. A married couple and the wedge gets, you know, drove between them because the house wants it to. That's how they it feeds off the energy, their inner turmoil. And then with both of them had bad marriages before, you know, and so it's just like all of that. And I think that John Zaffis, when he like was talking to the spirits and stuff, the spirit even said like, he wanted Deanna, she's mine, you know, like she's mine, she's going to be my bride, you know, so the spirit really wanted Deanna. Yeah. And there's, you know, different clips and again you can see everything on all these shows amy on the dead files everything every time she was saying something she was spot on with what i had heard in like interviews or earlier on that show and you know everything it's like damn how she know how she's so good i don't know and so it's just like dang I just felt so much more for Deanna, you know, because of how Amy was describing everything. You know, she even said, like, when she was in that first floor bedroom, she said that she felt there was a living female and she was frantic and she was always on the move. Like, I can go here and it won't hurt me. Okay, no, I can go here and it won't hurt me. And it's like, no, that really did happen. She moved from the upstairs to the downstairs and all of that, you know. And so I was just like, you're right, Amy. You're right. (laughs) Seriously, I really think y'all should watch everything because to me, Deanna seems very genuine and I'm just glad that she's found peace. Man, that was pretty heavy for a haunting. Right? That I was looking at something and the news article for the Halloween special came up and I was like, Okay, it's some bogus kind of shit, you know, like whatever. And so I was reading it. And then it said it was on the dead file. So I was like, okay, I'll watch that and just kind of see. Then it was like, wait, okay. And then I watched My Haunted House or whatever. That came on Lifetime. 
But for free, you can watch it online at like Daily Motion. Y'all know what I mean. If you know, you know. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I was just like, wait, what? Why have I never heard of this? I had never heard of this. And it's such a profound case to me. You know, there's so much like documentation and just even like the locusts, her neighbors saw that. Yeah. You know, and it was so that right there is like, oh shit. I know. And there were more like deaths that happened on that property that they didn't go into on the dead files. And she goes into it a lot in the book because it deals with that male entity and her protector. But I feel like on the dead files, because like I saw the paper clippings and all of that for those, like truly, you know, like that really happened. That's documented. And so that's what I included. Do you think that the entity is the guy who lost his son and lost his property? Or do you think he caused that? You know, I think he calls that because I thought it was that guy. I thought it was John Diggs. But she mentioned in one interview a name called Ephraim. And so, again, I think that, again, plays into her protector spirit. Ephraim was a bad man and, you know, could have killed this spirit. But, like, again, I didn't see any documentation of that. And so I don't know. But she's had several different people come in. And I didn't watch the Ghost Hunters thing. So I I don't know, like, if they found that too or what. So, again, I don't know if they go more into detail about that connection. I don't think it's that. But I think it's something that, again, how he said, like, he had been, like, it's ancient. It's been there, whatever. You know, like, just taking in all the energy it could and then, like, finally, like, had its, you know, time to really, like, go after someone. I don't know. I feel like Deanna and Centoya, they do have similarities in their battles. In the trauma. Yeah. Not the same trauma, but trauma. Yeah. And both happier endings than normal haunting stories for me. Mm-hmm. Because normally they're still in that house, still being plagued or, you know, they couldn't get rid of it, but they had to leave and they're really sad that someone else had to move in. You know, they seem to have a hold on this and they care about it, but I don't know. Like, they just seem to be at a good spot. Yeah, and I think that's kind of becoming a little bit more of the norm is that people are so much more into the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And so people are like, looking more like no i want a haunted house like you know and so people are more apt to be like no no no, i want to rent that house yeah because it's haunted and so if you're upfront about it like that you know you may get a zach vegans it's like no man i want that house you know right well if you made it this far thank you remember please like subscribe review like Asterisk, 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 review us on iTunes, Stitcher, I think you can do, anywhere, anywhere, help us out. And to y'all who have been reviewing, thank y'all so much. We see them and we really appreciate them. Yeah, and don't forget, if you want 
head on over to Patreon. Check it out. There's lots of different tiers for various budgets. So head on over, check that stuff out. See if the bonus content is something that you want. Patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.